So we're going to get started now. So uh, let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll get into it. Our Father in heaven, we worship and praise your name. We focus our minds now on glorifying you and thinking of all the good and wonderful things you've done in this world for us. That you called each one of us by our names. You helped us to open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. You changed our hearts so that way we could believe the gospel. I pray that we would always recount that day by day and we would not forget the amazing grace and mercy and kindness you've had towards us. And out of that, we would be kind and merciful and gracious to others. Even in this life where it seems like everyone's fighting with everyone else all the time, I pray that in this house, in your sanctuary, that you would have your church be kind and generous and gracious to one another. That our love would be something that the world would be amazed by. I pray, Father, for this lesson that as we talk about um, fear of man and how personal it can get with our own individual fears and worries and needs, Lord, that you'd speak to each one. You know what each person is struggling with and what each person needs help with, myself included. And I pray that you would give us the scripture, the encouragement from a brother or a sister, um, whatever we need. You know what it is and you orchestrate the body. I pray that we would minister to one another encourage one another, build one another up so that we can do the hard work of telling our friends and our loved ones about Jesus and overcome that fear of their reactions or how they're going to um, respond to us. Instead, we would have courage and that we would take solace in the love and the graciousness and the kindness of our church family to support us in times where we're rejected for the sake of your name. Pray, Father, for me that you would help me communicate clearly and um, be impactful. I pray that there would be some good questions and, and conversations that people would uh, answer the things that I can't answer and that we would respond and that we would grow together. Thank you again for all the good things that you've given us, that we're healthy, we have food, we have shelter, and we live in a place where we do not walk the streets in fear. These are all good and great things. I'm, I thank you that you've given them to us. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, we've been talking about the fear of man the last couple weeks, and just as a way of overview, first week was talking about the fear of man, what that looks like. The second week was talking about the fear of God, which is really the antidote to the fear of man, right? If we fear God more than we fear men, then that empowers us. But that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to fear God because uh, the way that sin is in our lives and the way that it affects us is that it's constantly making us focus on our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, what's inside of us, and so we end up fearing men for our own reasons rather than fearing God. And so the third week was more of a, um, a, description, a description of the different kinds of fear we could have, right? Fear of rejection, fear of harm, fear of exposure, and I wanted you guys to do kind of like a self-diagnosis, like what's the, what's the thing you're, you're fearing and why? Well, we didn't get to the why. The why is this week. And the question is, ultimately, what do we need? You'll see that at the top of your uh, handout. The question that I think it boils down to is, what, what do you need? What do you deeply desire? And if you know what that is, you'll see what's kind of animating your actions. So, how, how do we struggle with fear? How do we identify what we need? 
Those are really the questions. Now, like I said, the, the overall outline of this course is by uh, Capitol Hill Baptist, so I would recommend you that you go there if you want to um, read uh, more information on it. There's no sermons on it, they're just texts and things like that, the, the overall uh, framework and then resources. But um, this lesson in particular is a tough one because now we're trying to get into the practical, the pragmatistic, the how do you actually go about tackling fear of man. But of course that kind of goes into philosophy and it kind of gets out of the realm of biblical texts, which I don't necessarily like, but the fact is a lot of texts in the Bible are, uh, they're much less, I hate to say introspective, but I think people in the, in the time before, in the ancient Near East, had a better understanding of their own minds in a weird way than we do, because maybe they're not distracted by all the tech and the things around us and all the flashy lights, and they actually had time to meditate. You know, you're sitting there, you're watching sheep, what are you going to do, right? You're thinking about the sun and the moon and the stars. Like I was reading a psalm this week. Um, it's a psalm of David, Psalm 8. And in verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Right? And the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So clearly, David knew Genesis. He understood the story of Adam and Eve, and he knew how God had given humanity this dominion, that he made them inheritors of the earth, and he spoke to them in a special way that he did not speak to the angels. And here he is out there probably tending sheep because he was a shepherd, and he's looking up and seeing the stars and the moon, and he's thinking about how small he is in this universe. It's like, yeah, that's what astronomers do, right? That's what we do when we look up, hopefully, right? Well, light pollution doesn't allow us to see as many stars, but if you're outside of Las Vegas, you look up and you see that, and now we're so conditioned to be like, oh yeah, I've seen a graph on the, you know, I've seen star charts, and you know, the comparison Bill Nye, you know, here's the size of the earth, here's the size of the sun, and it's almost like it doesn't hit as hard as it would have back then. You know, when we, I, I think about this sometimes where how we've kind of mapped with Google all of the earth, you know, satellite imagery and stuff, and it makes it feel like there's no hidden places anymore, right? There's nothing more to discover. It's all mapped, right? When, when the fact is a lot of that stuff is not mapped, right? You take a satellite image of like, you know, 100 kilometers of forest, you can't see through that what, what's down there. You know, there's so many things to discover still. And the fact that it's so complex and all works together in this amazing ecosystem is an amazing thing. But point is, when we're thinking about an introspective question like, who is man that you're mindful of him? Why should God care about us, right? We have to actually start thinking on that level. We have to think about what do I actually need and not say, oh, I'm not into meditation. I'm not into philosophy. I'm not into thinking. How do I know what I know? I think we need to focus more on meditation and we need to think, we need to expect from ourselves and others a higher level of thought than just making it simplistic if that makes sense. So in some senses, when you're teaching a lesson, you want it to be relatively simplistic, so people have things to take away. And then other times, it's just going to be complex because that's the nature of it. I think that the, how we got the New Testament is like that, right? It's just complex because it is. So I'm always trying to like, how do I make it simple so it's under, you're able to understand it, but at the same time, not dilute it into like the, out of the complexity. So 
if, uh, if this is a little bit, a little bit of philosophical, I'm sorry, but uh, it's just the way it is. I feel like this, is, this kind of strikes the heart of how we're, how we're acting. So the three kinds of fear we talked about, the fear of rejection. Well, that's clear. That's, I think that a lot of people struggle with that, right? We know that rejection, or if we want to use a colloquial term, uh, cancel culture, right? We don't want to get canceled, right? We don't want to, like, be kicked off of our social media platforms. We don't want to be fired from our jobs. You know, we don't want to be ostracized from society. Uh, you know, we don't want to be rejected. So, and this power is very effective because you think about how at one point there was going to be vaccine mandates, right, where you couldn't do anything unless you had a vaccine passport. People were actually talking about that. That's not out of the realm of possibility that we could have had a level of rejection at that point. Now, thankfully, sanity won out. We don't have that anymore. But the point was, is that we all fear rejection of some sort, even if you're not a Christian, right? There's many non-Christians that also feared this level of rejection. Same thing with fear of harm, right? Fear of harm um, is a poor answer to the question, what do I need? Because there's nothing wrong with wanting to stay safe, right? We talked about that, right? Don't be be unwise in, in how you treat yourself. But if we put the safety, our, our personal safety, higher in the need category than God, right? So we need to really put it in a strong desire category, if I can call it that. We need to fear God more than harm, but we need to put harm in its right place, right? It's not, it's not uh, useless, but there is, a, there is a, a hierarchy that needs to happen. We don't want that fear uh, of harm to trump going to dangerous places for God or talking to people that might respond, uh, you know, badly on the street or so, or, or so forth. And then fear of exposure works the same way. There's nothing wrong with a desire of uh, a certain level of modesty and privacy, right? Like, I don't want someone to know everything about me. Um, when they ask me certain questions, I'm not going to offer up too much information. Uh, and that's more of a privacy thing, or it should be, right? It's a, a separation of relationships and knowing how much people need to know. But a fear of exposure is once again not a ordering of the right fears if it's just idolatrous, meaning that if you want to keep your reputation intact and your reputation is the highest thing you care about, more so than God, right? It's like someone asks you point blank if you're a Christian, if you caveat that with other stuff, are you really, are you worried about your reputation being hit with whoever you're talking to, your peer group, your work friends, or something like that? Because you know the follow-up questions will probably be like, you don't really believe in fill in the blank. You don't really believe in hell. You don't really believe in, you know, the sanctity of marriage. You don't really believe in, that abortion is a sin, right? And you're going to have to answer those questions, right? And then it becomes, okay, maybe I want to cut this off and say, well, yeah, I'm religious or something like that. Now, I'm not saying we would do that. I'm saying I can see how people would do that, if that makes sense. So identify where your own fear is. Um, which one of those categories... They're not exhaustive, but which one of those categories generally your fear works into? That's what we talked about last week. And so what are the answers to these questions? And I think that you have three kinds of wrong answers um, to these questions. I think that's on your handout. You have the ascetic answer. Uh, Asceticism is this idea that you don't need anything, right? You live without stuff, right? Uh, You see this with the ultra-minimalists, right? They just have like a house, you walk in, it's blank everywhere, and there's a cube. (laughs) You're like, it's artistic, right? Uh, of course, I'm making a joke, but I, I've studied Zen Buddhism, and that's how they are. You know, Zen minimalism is literally, it looks austere. It looks like there's nothing there. And the idea is they're rejecting the materialistic world, right? I don't need things like other people need things. And that makes me feel good and makes me feel less cluttered, right? Uh, who's that Japanese woman that had us all purging our stuff for a little while? Marie Kondo, if you know that. 
So that kind of an idea, right? An asceticism of rejecting materialism. And that comes from Buddhism, right? That the idea is desi abandoning desire, right? We abandon desire, and then in that way, we don't feel like we have strong needs. Because this question is, remember, the overall question is, what do I need? And so the answer is like, well, I'm going to remove needs. I'm going to tell myself I don't have any needs by, by being an asceticist. But that doesn't work. In fact, a lot of people, uh, you have to really be rich to be a minimalist, right? Because you're constantly throwing everything away and then having to buy it again when you realize you need it. So I'm not saying be a hoarder, but there's obviously a balance. The second question, uh, the sense, second bad answer to what do I need is the hedonistic answer. Hedonism is this idea of just satisfying every desire you have, right? So a hedonist is the person in the Bible that Paul says, you know, if the resurrection isn't real, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? The idea is like, just go crazy, have orgies, get drunk, do whatever you want, and you definitely see people living the hedonistic lifestyle, especially in our culture where you can, right? Where banks will give you credit cards that will fund a hedonistic lifestyle until you're 20 grand in debt, and you're like, what do I do, right? But you can live that for a long time. Actually, uh, it, was, it was funny because more of a funny uh-oh, not a funny haha. But I, I, Tani was asking me, my wife was asking me about how there's a statistic that says that a majority of Americans are only $500 away from being in debt, right? They have like $500 average of savings. Uh, and she was saying, well, what happens when a lot of those people can't make those things? Because we're talking about student debt coming back in August. And I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of people that get credit cards and they can be in debt just like the United States government for a very long time before they have to pay that back, right? People can just credit cards, credit card, credit cards, do a consolidation credit card or a personal loan where you pay off all your credit cards, but it lives in this loan. And then you have more credit cards and the cycle just keeps continuing until you have 20, 30, 40, 50, $60,000 worth of debt. And then you have to file for bankruptcy because you just racked up this crazy debt. It's, it's an insane thing that we can do. I mean, that doesn't exist in a lot of other societies because we didn't have the banking system, we didn't have this level of debt that individuals could get. So it's a relatively uh, modern phenomenon. But I would say the, the worst part of that is not the usury indebtedness people get into, but just the fact that they can fund hedonistic lifestyles. Right? When you look online and you see the crazy amounts of spending that happens in terms of uh, people that want to become internet famous through, you know, TikTok or YouTube shorts, or whatever it is, doing these really crazy stunts or doing all this stuff, it comes from this hedonism. It, it comes from wanting to fund a lifestyle where they can live like a rich person and uh, fulfill all these desires that they have. So we won't want to be that. We don't want to be thinking with our needs, uh, I want a vacation so much I'm willing to go into debt to fund it right? I want this food, so I'm just going to buy it, regardless of my own personal health, right? We have to think of our needs, not just the instantaneous, but thinking it in a longer sense of, is this good for me in the long term? Is this glorifying to God in the long term, right? Um, I can't remember the quote exactly. I should have looked it up. I, I've mentioned it before. It's um, Jonathan Edwards, and he was talking about uh, wanting to eat bitter herbs so that he could serve the Lord longer, he understood even back then that eating healthy food or bitter herbs were good for you. And even though he didn't like them personally, he was resolved to do that. So he was one of those things that, it's one of those things where we have to think long term. We have to make sure that even though there are good desires, fulfilling them all instantaneously can lead to just responding to your wants as needs. So that's a bad answer. The third one is a combination of the two. 
And this is where I think a lot of people live, right? We basically divide our, our desires into two categories. Those we will deny and those we will treat as needs. But there's no scriptural basis for doing this. It's just a determination that we feel we can live with and, uh, you know, that's how we kind of have peace at night, right? Uh, we, we have a lot of desires that enter in that aren't really needs. And we, but we treat them like that, right? Um, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast and someone was one of those people in $60,000 worth of debt. And the person was going through their finances and saying, you are buying fast food four times a day and you're drinking three coffees. And he says, well, I need to eat. Well, yeah, you do need to eat, but you don't need this, right? You don't need this level, especially when you think about like uh, having someone deliver it to you just doubles the cost of it. But the point is, we all do that to a degree, right? Well, it's easy to look at that person and feel good about yourself. I think it's kind of why I watch it. You know, it's kind of like, it makes me feel good. I'm like, I'm not that guy, right? But I mean, that's the wrong response. In some way, maybe not like that way, but in some way, we can be honest, each one of us is like that, right? We just, maybe we're better at hiding it, but we will splurge on things that we don't really need, but we'll call it a need. Um, or we'll do it and then we'll hide it because we know that we should be spending money on it. So we're constantly in the struggle, right? Struggle of being, uh, our natural human desires to be hedonistic, fulfill all desires instantaneously, right? You see that so many stories throughout the, the Old Testament, right? I think Sodom and Gomorrah was the ultimate hedonistic city, right? But at the same time, obviously it's a bad thing, right? We don't want to be like that. So we know that, so then we can overcorrect into asceticism. Well, I don't need anything. It's going to float in a void, right? I'm going to be in my house with nothing in it. And, uh, but that's, you know, that's not obviously the right thing too, because uh, the disciples, Jesus, they had things. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, but they went back to Peter's house, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, and Peter had a wife. So there's, uh, there's not, an asceticism is not the right thing. So what do we need? It's a very tangled question. You know, needs are, are subjective to a degree. Like if you're in the desert, uh, you probably heard this example, right? Water is more of a need than money, right? You could be poor, but in the middle of the desert, water is more important to you, right? And in the same thing, if we came into Sunday school and we said, what's your greatest need? Well, we're all going to respond dutifully, Jesus, right? Which is true. But there is a level of needs depending on where you're at. Yes, we always need Jesus, but if you're in the middle of an argument with your roommate, you may say, I really want someone who listens to me right now, or I want peace, right? That's a need I have. If someone were to ask you, um, kind of in a, just a reflective, meditative conversation over coffee, what are your needs? You're like respect, love, understanding, self self-esteem, obedient kids, safety, control. They'd be all these very platitudinal, like platitudes, you know, like very generic, abstract concepts, because we all desire those things. But when we get to the concrete in the middle of an argument or in the middle of a desert, it becomes very tangible what we actually need versus what we just want. You know, the needs are limited only by human imagination and desire, right? So the three categories of need that very helpfully uh, the uh, Capitol Baptist broke this up into is biological needs, which scripture does talk about, right? Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount that we should not worry about what we eat or what we drink, right? Because the Father knows that we need them. So there are needs that are physical, right? We pray for daily bread. So there's a sense in which God understands and expects us to pray and desire food and drink. So that's good. We don't have to be asceticists and just be fasting as much as possible. The second one is, actually, one last thing on that. 
I'm just deciding if I want to talk about this. No, I'm going to move past. I'm going to move on. The second one is spiritual need. Spiritual need, um, you know, when you think about Scripture, that's where a, a majority of this is in, right? It, sp- the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, calculation of pi or how close planets are to each other, right? It doesn't have that precision that a lot of uh, atheists or scientists want it to have. But it does do a great job of being pretty brutal and ruthless and precise about our spiritual needs, right? Exactly where we stand before God and exactly what we need. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as helpless as, helpless as an abandoned baby in Ezekiel 16. We are slaves to sin in Romans 6. Of course, the great news here is that God has not abandoned us to our need, but has provided everything we need in Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we have both the understanding that we have spiritual needs to a great and deep degree, but that God has given us the answer in Christ. Praise God. The third category is a bit more sticky, and that's psychological needs. You know, it's just like physical needs. The the list of psychological needs can be as long as you personally need it to be, right? Or, it's a pun, need it to be. But the point is we don't really need a lot of those things that we think we need, but if you, once again, if we talk about the abstract, significance, acceptance, respect, admiration, love, belonging, meaning, so on, all of those things people say, that, and they would acknowledge that they need, but if you said concretely, what does that look like? This is why we have books like Love Languages, right? What con- concretely, when you say you want me to love you, what does that look like for you? Because the answer can be subjective. It can mean different things, and that's why I say it's sticky, because when you talk to a person, you really have to dig into their own mind to see what they actually need. One of the things I learned in college that was actually helpful was I was in a interview course, and they were talking about, like, you know, when you're interviewing, how to, to do it. And my teacher was really great because he would ask us questions that had a really, there was no really good right, yes or no answer to them. They were very complex on purpose because the person who was questioning you wanted something from you, but they didn't know how to ask it. So the whole course was about trying to see what they really were wondering and then answering that question. So one of the examples he gives us is, you know, if you're a woman and you go into to a job interview, they'll say, are you planning to become pregnant? Which is actually an illegal question. You're not supposed to answer, ask that question, right? It's prejudicial. But what are they really asking? The real question they're asking is, are you, if I hire you, are you going to abandon me in six months? Right? It's going to take time to train you and all this stuff. I'm just worried that I'm going to look bad. Right? I hire you, you look like a great candidate, and then you decide to leave, right? And I'm going to look terrible, and the, the job's going to be in trouble and stuff. So that's the real question behind it. And so in the same way, when we question ourselves, what do I really need? What are my psychological needs? We should actually think about what would that look like, and then communicate that to the people that you care about so that they understand how to interact with you. I think that's going to bring us a little bit more clarity on that. But the point is, we treat psychological needs as just basic, as just as essential, I should say, to human existence as our biological needs, right? It's no good if I just have bread all the time and I'm never loved or accepted or respected or anything like that, right? They're just as important, which is, str- which is strange to us because when we think about how the world talks about humans, we're just like animals, right? So we should just have to eat and wander around and mate, and that's it. That's all we need, biological needs. But we, as humans, made in the image of God, have psychological needs that are very real. And you can see the, the damage that can be done to people in the same way that if you withhold food and water from a person, if we withhold spiritual needs, and if we withhold psychological needs, 
We have just as much damage that can happen from that. All this saying that, there's real reasons why we fear not having these things. Because remember, this is talking about the fear of man. Why do we fear? What do we need? Um, How do I obtain the love, the acceptance, the value that I need to feel loved? Right? If I can, if I can encapsulate all this down, we, we just need love. And love is what's best for a person. So if I love someone, I'm doing what's best for them, regardless of how painful that is for them. Right? If I, if I am objective and I know this is the best thing for them, I will do it. And that's what people want. Even though they may say, like the interviewer, I want this, what do they really want? So there's a, there's a metaphor in this, in this course that the guy uses. Um, I'm going to describe it because I understand what he's trying to say. It's not my favorite metaphor, but I couldn't think of another one, so I'm going to use it. Um, you'll see it on your, uh, your handout as the love cup model of humanity. And the idea is, and you probably heard this, I think this is, psycho, this is a psychiatrist term, but the idea is you have a cup and you walk around with this cup. And as people are nice to you, they kind of pour their love into your cup. And if you have an overflowing cup, then it overflows and you pour it into other people's cups. So the idea is that we're, I mean, obviously there's problems with metaphor. It's like there must be a limited amount of liquid, <laughs> right? I'm like, how do, how do we, so there's always going to be people destined to have empty cups, right? But the point is, if we have empty cups, we're unable to give to other people because we don't have anything to give. And I understand what he's saying because there's times when we're so exhausted from life that you really don't have time to do the things for other people you know you should. And you feel bad about that because you're like, I just don't have any more energy or time or whatever it is, fill in the blank. But I can, so I, I can see what he's saying, but, and I, I, this is a large but, I think there's problems with the love cup theory, and that's why there's a, a section that says problems with it. Do we have questions? Are you going to move on to that section four right now? No, not yet. Oh, but you want to say something? Before? Okay, sure. Go ahead. So, so I would say that all three are legitimate, but here's, here's the distinction, is that what, we, what are actual needs versus what are perceived needs, and then how do we structure those? That's, that's the problem with it being a very complex topic, right? Because we need food, right? The scripture says that. We need to have our spiritual needs fulfilled. That scripture says that, and there's psychological needs. And you see that in scripture too, because it says to treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a psychological idea, right? So all of those things are legitimate. But the problem is people will say, my desire for biological needs right now trump other things. Meaning that if I'm hungry, I'm going to kick everyone out of the way in the line for the buffet, right? Like, I'm going to elbow the old person out of the way and like, I have a need right now, right? That's not what we're saying, right? Or um, I have a psychological need, love cup theory, and so I need you to fill my cup first before I can do anything for you, right? That's the problem. Or spiritual needs. Um, I need to feel better about my spiritual state, so I will go and spend money on some kind of religious experience or conference. I'm trying to think of an example of how to treat that in a different way. I think a lot of people just ignore their spiritual needs, honestly, right? If we talk to people that are unbelievers, they just ignore them. They're like, I'm good. Are you really? Yeah, I feel right. Yeah, I feel happy. But they're really just ignoring it. So, does that answer your question?
it's a hierarchical thing. Where do we place these things in the right place versus uh, unordering it and living that hedonistic lifestyle where we access everything? Or with the spiritual, we're ascetic and we just ignore it as something we don't need at all when we really do need something like that, right? If someone ignores their psychological needs, right? We always hear this joke, right? People are like, you need therapy, right? And unfortunately, we hand that off to therapists rather than people going to church, which is what they should do, because a lot of those psychological and spiritual needs are intertwined. I just break them up artificially because we're talking, we're trying to break it down. But point is, people will just live through their life totally ignoring their psychological and spiritual needs, and then, you know, they'll end up uh, killing themselves because they've just ignored it for so long that they've done the equivalent of starving themselves to death. So I don't know if that answers your question. Helpful? Somewhat? We can have a deeper conversation afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Uh, so one example here is that you, I think everyone here would agree that our main premise that we need love, and we would stress the right Christian response to this, right, is that lo- Christ's love fulfills all these things, which is true to a degree. Um, we would say, someone might say, we're married to Christ, and so therefore we don't need anyone else. And there is a sense in which there is scriptural backing for that, where Paul says it's better not to marry if you're able to, so on and so forth, but the counter to that is if you're burning with lust, you should be married, right? So there's constantly, uh, I have a friend who really finds this frustrating about the Bible. Is that he's like, I just want it black and white, give me a list. But the Bible understands we're all individuals with a very unique makeup. And so it does, it is one of those things where it relies on you or the people you're talking to or your mentors or your pastors to help you work through how to balance these things, right? So that you're doing it the correct way and not uh, going over one way too strongly versus the other. Any other questions about that? Like I said, I know it's kind of hard to grasp. Okay, more questions later at the end if we have time. So problems with the love cup theory. We're on number four on your outline, I believe. Yeah. So as you can imagine from how I've described this, there are some pretty serious flaws with the love cup theory, uh, like I said. Um, If you describe it, you know, just as I described it, or if you use a modified Jesus meets all my psychological needs, right? So Jesus pours into my cup. But here's three, three problems. First, the love cup theory makes it seem like unfulfilled desire is at least as much of a cause of our sinful behavior as our sinful hearts, right? This is the problem we always run into society. We always say it's some kind of external factor, not an internal factor, right? It's something that I'm not getting, therefore I'm doing the sinful behavior. Uh, you'll see this when you have an argument with someone. Um, you might do it yourself, where you say, well, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm fill in the blank, right? You're always, you never compliment me when I come home. I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm tired, right? There's some kind of external biological or or psychological need that I had. You didn't give me, and therefore I'm going to be sinful. When usually it's a mixture of both. I'm not saying, I'm not discounting that those things can make you more aggressive, right, if you're hungry. But point is, all of our sin comes from what's inside of us. That's what Jesus says, right? It's not what is outside of a person, but what's inside. So, not saying that people being sinful to you uh, won't stir up your anger and your sense of revenge and all of that, but people treated Jesus terribly and he never sinned. So, uh, I don't think it's an excuse. But the problem is, if you talk to a person and they say, well, the reason my, my, I'm struggling with these things is because 
the example is, my wife doesn't respect me, she doesn't love me, and that's why I have such a short fuse. Um, that's, that can come out of this idea of this theory that we're kind of flowing out this love cup idea. Second, the, the model doesn't fit how the Bible describes our motivational love. We're not called to love people because they need our love, much less because by loving them, they'll love us back and meet our, our need for love, right? This kind of, that's how a lot of people treat relationships, right? Transactional. I give to you, and then I expect you to transact to me, and if you don't, well, we're going to cut this off when I'm not going to treat you with this transactional love anymore. When you think about the Bible and what it says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule, a lot of people assume the second part replies back to them, but there's no promise of that. You treat others like you want to be treated, but there's no promise there that they're going to treat you the same way. It just says to do it. It's actually unilateral, right? There is an idea in Scripture all throughout the New Testament that Christians are commanded and expected to treat people in a very loving way with patience and gentleness and kindness and respect, but it doesn't limit the golden rule to just Christians. It's a universal command, right? So the way that the Bible describes our love is a a unilateral love that does flow from God because we love because he first loved us. That's what 1 John 4 says. And it's not, even that could be misinterpreted because it's not as though we say, Jesus has loved me, which has now met my felt needs or my need for love. So now I, I'm free to love others and I'll give them, them love. That is this modified uh, Jesus fills my cup theory. Um, the Bible's view of love is because Christ loved us, there is more freedom and less compulsion, if that makes sense. Uh, Paul's explanation of love in 2 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Or Luke 7:47. He who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has forgiven much loves much. So if, you're for being, if you've been forgiven by God, you cannot help but love God, is the idea. A lack of love of God is either the sign of that the heart remains unregenerate and unforgiven, or that the heart, because it's deceptively wicked, has made you forgot or forget how much you've been forgiven and how much you're loved, Right? And that's something we struggle with all the time. You see that all throughout the Bible, too. This idea of having to remind themselves. I mean, you think about the Old Testament, how many songs are about what God's done for the people of Israel. It's not by accident. People need to be reminded quite a bit. We're quite forgetful. But forgiveness drives us to love. That's actually what we need to, to take away from this. Third, the love cup model takes the command to love others, and it turns it around to say that we need to be loved. Kind of like the husband demanding his wife respect him, since she's commanded to in Ephesians 5, to act if I've been wrong when others don't just love me, or if I act that I've been wrong when others don't love me the way I expect, that's not biblical, right? Better to say that you have a need uh, to be loved and that you can express that than to say, I'm not going to fill my biblical commands to you in all of the ways we need to, right? Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, but also children to elders or to parents, um, people in the church, right? Uh, there's a part in the Bible where it says, oh, I wish I, see, I'm terrible with addresses. Someone will know this. Something that we struggle with, I think, in the, in the, in the church is this idea of, uh, rightly so, it's a complex topic. I'm not going to solve it right now. But men and women being friends, 
right? That's, a, that's a something we struggle with because we see all the corruption and all the sin that can come out of that. But there's a part in the Bible that says to love all older men as fathers, all older women as mothers, and all younger men as brothers, and all younger women as sisters, and all purity, right? So there's an idea where we should be fighting that compulsion to say that we can't be a family in the same way as a biological family. Now, obviously, I'm saying it's a complex topic. There's issues with trust and being alone, all of that. But the point is, when we ignore commands in the Bible because of fears or things that we have, there's problems. We need to work through those. In the same way, if you say, I'm not going to love you, wife, unless you respect me, because that's what the Bible commands you to do, right? You're also being, um, and you're, right, because it's like, you're not filling my cup, so I can't fill your cup. See, it's, a, it's like I said, I understand what he's saying. It's a bad analogy, but it's the best we got. Kind of like um, the Trinity being an egg or an avocado, right? It's like, not perfect, but it's all we got. Go ahead. Um, is, yeah, I didn't mean to say, say that out loud, but like, yeah, um, the, the problem with the, the, you know, the egg metaphor is that God doesn't exist in three parts. The Father's not the Son, nor the, whole, uh, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. As well as it's for like, there's just truths in the Bible that you gotta accept them just by virtue of their own reality. Right. It's like when you start to like, uh, make metaphors that don't work just for the sake of explaining it to people. It's very easy for that doctrine to like get eroded away and to, mm-hmm. to heresy and all these things. So. Right, and that's what I was saying. That's that's the weakness of almost every metaphor, right? Is that it only goes so far. The love cup theory kind of is right, but doesn't go far enough. The egg theory is is something we use to uh, help explain to children, but doesn't go far enough. The fact is that the Trinity is unexplainable uh, in in a full comprehension because when we think of things, we always compare them to other things, like an egg, right? Look at this thing I have, and you understand it. If I tell you there's a new movie coming out, and you ask me what's it like, and I say, it's Indiana Jones meets Jaws, you already kind of understand what it is. I've used two comparisons of things that exist to help you explain something. But God, being completely unique, has no comparison. Because if there was something that you could compare it to, it would be unique, right? So he's uncomparable, right? He's indescribable in some ways, right? The only way we can understand him is the way that the Bible describes him, right? But even that, that's where people struggle, because the Bible doesn't say, okay, now let me break down the Trinity for you, right? There's parts and pieces that we're trying to stitch together, right, and, and understand it, or kind of trying to make it comprehensible. So trying to make something comprehensible that's incomprehensible is tough. But I would argue that using no metaphors is not helpful either, right? Because if you just say, I'm never going to help you understand it, it's tough too. You just have to say, here's the limits on where that is. Does that make sense? Well, no, because like, even like, it's something more like, I think that like, from a young age, like, there's just some things that you just gotta say, well, this is how it is, you're never gonna fully understand it, and that's just the healthier approach. I mean, there, there are some stuff where metaphor is gonna be helpful, but when it comes to something so pivotal, especially in this era where we're living in, where like, Ed, Edward Linton Jr., former president of the SBC, said that God is, like his statement of faith in his church was God exists in three parts. We have a prominent SBC leader mm-hmm. until uh, it became scandalous for him to to do so, to uh, to have that as his, as his church's statement of faith. And it's something where like, um, there wasn't like, it was one thing where like he was just able to like clean that up like so quickly. <laughs> such a mess. And it really speaks volumes to the era that we live in. And it's because, unfortunately, because we use these metaphors, the three-leaf clover and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So 
get stuff wrong all the time myself. Right. So, brother, if no one's heard that, was a saying that the, the downsides of using metaphors. But let me respond one last time. I have the mic, so I have power. But uh, two things to, to talk about that. So he was talking about an SBC uh, president who uh, had the wrong, his statement of faith had God in parts, which is uh, not correct. Two things to that. One, the fact that we have Trinitarian statements is an attempt to understand it, right? So we wouldn't just say the Trinity is incomprehensible. We try to structure it some way, right? And we have three statements of faith, right? That um, God, there's only one God, that all uh, the, they exist in three persons, and then those people are co-equal and co-eternal. Right? I think those are the three statements of the Trinity, if I'm quoting from memory. So we try to structure it to a degree. The other thing, too, is that um, one of the things that I was reading this recently, someone brought up correctly, and I brought it up last week, that there, Paul never talks about hell. In all of Pauline letters, there's no talk of hell. There's not even a mention of it. The person that talked about hell the most is Jesus, right? But what's the, does anyone know the uh, response from the world to Jesus talk about hell a lot? The most common one? Okay, the most common one is that he was referring to a garbage dump outside called the Valley of Hinnon, and it was just a burning garbage dump, and he was, he was just talking about bodies being burned. He didn't mean hell because he was using a metaphor. And what he was doing was he was trying to point to the garbage dump where dead bodies would be burned and there's all this garbage and saying, hell is like that. Now, is it, not, is it exactly like that? No, it's incomprehensible. But even Jesus used a metaphor. He was saying it's not a perfect metaphor, but this is close to what it is. Look how there's always bodies being burned, that there's worms crawling around and there's just like wailing out the outside because people would be outside crying for their loved ones that would be being destroyed. Point being is that the, the metaphor is not perfect, but even Jesus used metaphors. He tried, he walked through fields and saw agriculture and he said, the, the, the kingdom of God is like this. It's not perfect. He had to use multiple examples, right? He had to use the seed and the woman sweeping his, her house, right? And the guy who files the pearl of great price. But I, I would just challenge you and say that metaphors aren't always bad. You just have to show where the limits are of the, of the metaphor. So we can talk about it more a little bit afterwards. Okay, any questions on love cup theory? No? Okay. So, like I said, it's, it's a decent metaphor. Um, we need to have our cup filled. We want to fill others. But let's put that in the right limits, which is that we aren't, um, we're not going to create excuses if we don't, if we don't have our needs met. Um, we're going to think about love the right way, which is that because God has loved us, we are compelled to love others, right? That is the duty that we have as creatures to glorify God. So, um, the, the distinction that, we, that we're struggling with, at least I'm struggling with, hopefully uh, you guys are following me, is that our culture has very different terms or ideas of what is a need versus a desire. There are good and reasonable desires, but they're not needs. They're not necessary. And we need to order those desires correctly. You can see the difference between a desire and a need and how you react when you don't get what you want. When someone deprives you of something you desire, you're disappointed, you're sad. But when someone deprives you of something you need, even if you just think you need it, you're a lot more than disappointed. You're mad, uh, you have um, an issue of, it's an issue of justice, not preference, right? Um, when we have a desire for respect and we don't receive it, we're hurt. But if we have a need for respect, we're devastated, we're angry, right? We, we take it out on people. If love from other people was a need, one way you would expect that to show up in the Bible would be, a numer would be in numerous prayers recorded in Scripture. 
But while we see many prayers for biological needs and for spiritual needs, we don't necessarily see a lot of prayers for psychological needs, which is interesting. Take the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew 6. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as, we've also, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So God and Jesus clearly sees our needs are important, right? Absolutely. We pray our daily bread. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for deliverance from evil, biological needs, spiritual needs. But what we're lacking is any recognition, the way that we frame them, of being needy in relation to other people, which is kind of where psychological needs come out of. Instead, we're enshrining our demands to be loved. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Instead of enshrining our demand to be loved, Scripture tells us simply to love because of the love we've already received. So, any questions so far? Like I said, I know we've covered a lot. It's kind of uh, complex to a degree. Number five. What are common ways that we act as if we have a psychological deficit that must be filled with love? Are there some ways that what I've been saying could be misunderstood? So, in this next section, who are you? We are now getting into the self-reflective part of it, right? Where I, I don't have answers here. This is something that we each need to think of our own minds and what we need. There is a very interesting... Um, aspect of humanity where this comes in different ways and different forms throughout time uh, in terms of decades and how people put it, but um, you've probably heard something to the degree of, if you don't feel like you want to do something, you should just do it, and the feelings will come later. Anyone heard something like that? The idea is like, the idea of duty, right? Uh, John Piper talks about this in his book, uh, For the Desire for God. He talks about uh, Desiring God, that's the name of the book. He talks about, he gives this very famous metaphor or example where he goes and he's driving and he wants to pick up some flowers for his wife. So he buys some flowers, drives home, and he gives some flowers to his wife. And she's like, oh, John, these are beautiful. I love these. These are great. And he's like, well, it's my duty. Right? I'm supposed to. That's what husbands do, right? It's like, that's not the reaction she wants from him. She wants the, of course, I thought of you. I love you. This is what I want. I knew it would make you happy. I bought these things for you. So it can't just be duty without emotion. Right? We can't separate ourselves into just doing duty all the time and not having emotion behind it. But by doing things, emotion comes. Um, have everyone read the book Power Poses? It's, a, it's kind of a, like a self-help uh, business book. I've read it for business. But there's this weird psychological effect where if you are going to go into a meeting and you're kind of like, or say an interview, and you're nervous and you're unsure about yourself, if you go in, they've studied this, you go into the bathroom and you make power poses. You're like, I'm, I'm Superman, I'm Wonder Woman, all this stuff. It psychologically boosts your self-esteem temporarily to where you do marketably better in terms of people, the way they perceive you. For a small period of time, it wears off. But yeah, people will do power poses. And she act, this, this doctor actually studied this, and she saw people did way better by doing this. Now, why is that? It's kind of a weird thing. And I actually think about it, this is my own personal theory, same reason why we kneel to pray a lot of the times, or we clasp our hands, or we bow our heads. There's something about humanity where our physical posture and how we make eye contact with people or how we frame ourselves actually affects us psychologically. So in the same way, if I make power poses and I'm thinking I'm strong and no one can mess with me, I actually then start acting like that. Whereas when I'm submissive and I'm kneeling, I'm actually saying both to my mind, not just to God, 
I am submitting to you. I am thinking of you in a higher way. I am, like, saying, you're more important than me. That's why I think it's a good thing. You know, I, I always thought about this. You, you see people in the, in the New Testament where they raise their eyes to heaven as the common way to pray, right? You see the, the Pharisee, and you have the, uh, the um, you know, G- Jesus, he, he lifts his eyes to pray when he prays. But you have the, um, the tax collector who looks down, beats his chest, right? So there is different modes of it. But I think that there's nothing wrong with looking up or looking down however you want. But there is something there's something we don't understand about human physiology that our actual posture affects our minds. So, it's, just in, it's, it's a, a little bit of a, a, an aside, but the point is, when we're talking about who we are, we can't just think about who I am when I think by myself without stressors. I have to think about how I'm reacting under stress in times of conflict, and what, I'm, what am I doing in terms of Am I leaving the area? Am I dealing with the problems? What are my real needs? Like I said, it's introspective. I think those are things that you have to deal with. In Genesis 1, God creates all living things after their own kinds. That is, every apple is patterned after another apple, every zebra after another zebra. But when it's time to create human beings, God uh, says in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So we're in God's image and God's likeness, but we're not God. We'll say that right now, right? We're not, we're not uh, little gods. But we are meant to reflect him, and that our very being proclaims something about who he is. We have communicable attributes is the way that the... Uh, uh, the theologians talk about it, right? Our purpose in being created is to show off the glory and the goodness of God. As a human being, you do that by acting like God, by imitating him. By loving others, you're showing, by showing mercy, by creating, by teaching. You're not just a human being. You're a redeemed human who is being remade into the image of Christ. So as a Christian, you are to show off your glory of, of God, not merely by being human, but by also your new heart, your heart of faith changes you. As an image bearer, your life shows off the power and the wisdom of God. As in a redeemed image bearer, your life shows off mercy and grace of God as well. So this is the thing that's tough, I think, for people to grasp, is this idea that we are created to serve something, right? We will serve a God. So we are created to serve God, but if we don't serve the God, we will serve a God, right? This is the idea behind idolatry. We create a little idol of something that's more important than God, and we serve that. And fill in the blank. It's easy to do. It's just what you think about when you don't think about God, <laughs> right? Whatever's minds, right? Like if your family is the most important thing to you other than God, and you are ignoring God to spend time with your family, it's your family. If it's money, which is the easy one, it's money. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think, who was it, Spurgeon? We said the heart's an idol factory, or is it someone else? Calvin. Yeah, Calvin. Uh, you know, that is, that is 100% true. The more you think about it, the more you realize it's true, and you pray out to God for mercy and forgiveness. So, we're made in God's image, and that's who we are, and we're supposed to reflect these things. Number six, what do we really need? So, we always fill in the blanks of what we need, but a lot of those are desires, or a lot of those need to be structured in the right way. Psalm 6.5 says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? In Psalm 51, David asks God for forgiveness. But why does he ask God forgiveness? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, 
so that sinners will turn back to you. God gets glory when he meets our biological needs and our spiritual needs because of our thankful hearts, because then we tell people about his provision, and because by meeting those he needs, he keeps us alive, both physically and spiritually, to image him. Now, what relation do psychological needs have with these two other ones? Like I said, the psychological needs that we have are things that are things that come out of the duty we have to serving God. That's the way I answer it. It might be different for you, but that, the way I answer that question is, our psychological fulfillment comes out of knowing we're spiritually fulfilled and our biological and biological needs are met. Because in the duty towards God, if that's how we structure our lives, if we, as we said, fear God more than we fear man, and we're doing it in such a way that we glorify God, and we're doing that out of our forgiveness, right? The gospel. We know we had all this sin, all these problems, and we like to point to our personal sin or the external factors in our lives, whatever they are, people being sinful to us, right? As the reasons why our lives are so messed up. But what Jesus says, it's because we are sinful, right? This, this bad news that we are evil to the core. We desire our own things. And unless God changes our heart completely, we will never be able to love God in the way that he wants us to in this image we're talking about. But praise be to God, when someone comes to our life and preaches the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners, that he lived the perfect life so that we can have that perfect righteousness of Christ, that all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, because he died for that, and then he rose again on the third day, showing that he defeated death and that he was who he said he was. That gospel, that understanding, that us trusting as him as the perfect savior, knowing that he will be that, because God always keeps his promises, that then empowers us through a changed heart and a changed mind to be sanctified through the reading of the word and being with the body, to grow into the image of Christ, to reflect more of God's image, and then in our gratitude, and our desire to please the Lord who saved us, we start doing the duties, even if we don't feel like it. Oh, I don't want to do whatever, fill in the blank, right? There's some jobs that are harder than others, right? Cleaning, watching kids, right? But we do those things even if like, oh, this is driving me nuts. But we know by doing it, oh, we love our kids, right? We love doing those things. And even when we look at our clean house, we're like, oh, this is great. Even the minute things, by doing the duty, we get the pleasure afterwards, right? The real good dopamine, not the scroll forever dopamine, right? The actual one that's helpful for us. So in the same way, we, we structure our lives so that we serve one another in the church, even if it's hard, even if it's tough, even if people drive you nuts, right? But love covers a multitude of sins. We can't, we can't be perfect, right? And we're not perfect. So we're trying to we're trying to order ourselves in such a way that we're pleasing to God and, and mindful of that. I fear the Lord. I want to serve him because of the great goodness that he's shown me. And in that, I'm going to treat others more important than me, right? I'm going to structure my life so that even if we have hierarchies, right, our families first, then the church, even if we have those hierarchies, we're still doing it in such a way that we're trying to be glorifying God as much as possible. So that's kind of, there's more to it, but I wanted to leave last five minutes for some, um, some questions. I got four minutes. Any questions? Any thoughts? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Uh, he's including Jesus and the Holy Spirit, right? He says us. 
so what, uh, for our sister's question, if no one heard, was she was asking about Genesis 1, and she was saying when it says, let us make God in our image. There's two answers to that. I do believe that the Trinity was operating, even in Genesis, where they didn't know what it is. The common Jewish response to that is, there is a royal we, where kings will talk in plurals like that, because they're including the entire nation. So, it's not ironclad, but I think that they are, I think the Holy Spirit and Jesus is included in that, because they were in relationship before they created anything, right? And they created all things. So, any other questions? Comments? Thoughts? It's deep. Like I said. Yeah, sure. So, um, you mentioned psychologically and then biblically. So, I have been deeply um, looking into both of them. And in psychology, they say that men and women differ mm-hmm. in feelings and in thought. Would it be the same? Biblically, that because usually it talks about humanity mm-hmm. putting both of us together, but um, I even sometimes think that um, women are a little bit more um, go more into their feelings and a little bit more wandering in their thoughts. So when it comes into like fearing men are like it does it differ in men and women or is it like all the same oh okay so what our sister is saying is she was asking if uh biological and spiritual needs are gender specific or at least weighted differently because the idea is that men and women are created differently but the bible talks about our needs sometimes very universally right love one another be kind to one another things like that um, there's obviously, uh, if you've lived amongst people at all, you'll know that that's true, right? That women and men are different in how we react. I would even point to some passages where it says, husband, love your wives, but wives, respect your husbands. There is some passages that make it seem like Paul understands that people have different psychological desires, right? Different needs that they, that they have, things that they want to see. The other thing, too, is you can think of it like people are made for different reasons, right? Men are built stronger and meant to protect the family and protect the, you know, the tribe and stuff. And if you see a, you know, some kind of beast coming at you, you're not going to think about your feelings at that point. You're kind of structured to just take out the, the monster that's coming for you, right? Uh, in the same way, women are, are more nurturing and they, they, they're the ones that actually physically have the kids. They have a connection that men will never have with their children just because they don't, have, they don't bear the kids. And so when you think about children and the fact that they don't communicate very well, if at all, right? You, there is a lot of subliminal understanding of feelings and what they're really feeling, what they really want, and body language and stuff that I think women are more attuned to by God's design so that they can take care of needs on a subliminal level. Same thing with older people and things, and they're better at reading people body language than men are. And um, maybe that's why when men hang out, we, we never look at each other. We're all just sitting parallel talking about things, right? Or, or looking down. And, but women like eye contact and things like that. So there's a lot of very interesting research in that. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't go to that level. But I think there's an understanding in the Bible that it is separate, you know, because we are uniquely made. You know, uh, there's two halves to a whole. God embodies all of the attributes, which is why, um, you know, in order for us to reflect the image of God correctly, it, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needed the accompanying Eve to, to make that union. So, very interesting question. Um, we're out of time, but uh, I just want to encourage anyone, if you ever have a question, let me know. The last time for me to teach is next week, so if you have any questions you want me to answer, let me know, because we'll be wrapping this up next week. Father God, I thank you so much for these people here, uh, for the questions. I pray, Father, that this would be helpful to someone, 
it is sub, uh, subjective and, and specific to each person, and I pray that they would meditate upon their needs, their desires, what they fear, um, and you would help them fear you more, because that's way we'll be rightly ordered. Thank you again for all the good stuff that you've given us. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.